journey through the North American Super Nintendo Library, three games at a time. We play them briefly, we judge them harshly, and we rank them, and that is pretty much all you need to know. I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. And uh, we got some games today, and I will say, I know we were really dreading this one. We've got three games that, let's say, do not have the greatest reputation for us. We've got a Koei game, which is not our favorite thing. We've got a Dragon's Lair console game that, based on what we know about the NES version, we were ready for that to be an unplayable mess. We have got Cool World, which, based on its NES version, which we have played, we were expecting it to be an unplayable mess as well. It was not as bad as I was expecting. I was stealing myself for something much worse than what we got. Yeah, same here. I was very nicely surprised that the Cool World game in particular is a completely different game than the NES version, which I do genuinely think that NES game is is unplayable in, in a true sense of that word. And yeah, as, as a whole, uh, these games were not as bad as I was expecting. Though, I, to be clear, I didn't expect the Koei game to be bad. I just expected it to be sort of extremely unapproachable for me. So I've got a little bit more of a spring in my step with these than than I expected to. Another weird continuity thing today between between a couple of the games. Last time we had our our sort of nautical episode. Today is our non-Disney animation luminaries of the like 70s and 80s episode, I guess. There we go. in, In that way. Uh, really weird how that works out, that we have a game based on a Ralph Bakshi movie and a game based on a Don Bluth thing in the same episode, but here they are, and they are both video games. They are, and um, I, I'm i still baffled that, I, I mean, honestly, like of all of the strange things that they turned into kid-friendly franchises, like... Attack of the Killer Tomatoes and the Toxic Avenger, RoboCop, things like that, that absolutely were not made for kids and yet turned into like cartoons and or video games. Cool World is the most baffling. Granted, Cool World is the movie that from what I have read about it, I've never seen it. I do not know who that movie was supposed to be for in the first place. I have seen that movie and I also do not know who that movie was was <laughs> supposed to be for but there is kind of a story about that that is sort of part of that movie's legacy the fact that it it is very conflicted production i'm sure we'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about the game itself anyway um which of these do we want to tackle first today well uh let's go ahead and start with arrowbiz okay let's get the koei game out of the way first This is another Koei game, another Koei Sim game, and this is another Ko Shibusawa production. I don't think we've actually dug into Koei yet, so I decided to look up and be like, okay, who is this Ko Shibusawa guy? It turns out that is not the person's real name. Ko Shibusawa is an alias for Yoichi Arakawa, 
who founded Koei in 1978, along with his wife, Keiko Arakawa. It's a little bit tough to pin down what the company was in their very early years, or if they're even what, if it even was the same company. Some websites say that the company started out as a chemical wholesaler. Others claim that it was selling computers in the early days. So I'm not entirely sure how Koei started out. What everyone does seem to agree on is that Arakawa founded Koei Uh, Not long after his family's business, a dye-making company, filed for bankruptcy. Most also seem to agree that Yoichi had been interested in computer programming for a while, at least since 1980. But at first, kind of kept the game making as a hobby. In 1981, they released the PC-88 game, uh, oh boy, uh, Kawa Nakajima no Kasen, which was a, like a lot of Koei's games, an early historical sim. Uh, which depicted a military conflict between two warlords in northern 1500s Japan. 1500s northern Japan? What's the best way to say that? I don't know. (laughs) I don't don't know. know. The company would also wade into some seedier waters with an erotic game called Nightlife that came out in 1982. And that game is actually cited as being one of the first, if not the first, erotic game, or eroge, uh, in Japan, and uh, it, it obviously wouldn't be the last. Those would become very popular. And uh, th- not only did Koei make one of those, but th- it actually wasn't terribly uncommon around this time for software companies that are still prominent today to have sort of waded in those waters with them. Didn't Squaresoft make a number of erotic games in the in that that time period, like when they were just like a PC company? Yeah, they did actually. Square released a game called Alpha in 1986, which is that another one of those uh, erogays. Koei would quickly go back to historical simulations, though, releasing Nobunaga no Yabo in 1983, which sold very well and got released on a lot of different computers at the time, and that was kind of Koei's first sizable hit. The historical simulation would become the company's bread and butter up to, well... Today, um, they're still making them. Uh, Koei merged with Tecmo in 2008, but still exists today as Koei Tecmo, along with some of their other franchises like the historical brawler series Dynasty Warriors. And that's pretty much all I've got about them right now. We've not had the best time with these historical strategy games. They're not really either of our jam. And even granting that obviously these games have an audience, I don't know why you would go back to games from this era specifically. As I've been saying over and over again, there are versions of these games that are more recent where they sort of learned how to onboard new players better and and be more accommodating to people who are just jumping into this. Right. I think that Aerobiz does a slightly better job than every other game that we have looked at so far at kind of onboarding new players. I guess we should talk about what Aerobiz is first. Yeah, let's talk about that. Because this is not a historical conquest sim in the, in the same way that uh, any of the others we have played are. Even, even something like uh, Uncharted Waters, which I guess you could argue is a little bit closer to this in some ways. Well, you know, I mean, it, it is still kind of like a conquering sim, except is, yeah. instead of conquering through wars and 
cannons and swords and magic we're conquering through capitalism it's true this is a an airline management simulation essentially you select a time period there's two time periods available one which covers essentially the the 60s through the 90s and another one which covers uh is it the the 80s through the 2010s i believe so which means that it actually would have been venturing a little bit into the future yeah from their point of view and you essentially build an airline you select from a, a large map of the world of all of the different air travel hubs you select one to be your base you run routes between various airports you buy planes you do marketing you essentially try to conquer the airline world through capitalism and there's a clock that runs it's turn-based so uh every every i guess quarter of the year Every player uh, who's each either a human or um, AI-controlled player controlling a different airline gets a turn in which they're able to kind of open negotiations with different airports to do business there, open or close branch offices, buy new planes, um, any of these functions of the company. And it kind of ticks forward from the starting year of whichever time period you've selected through to to the end point. And at the end of it, if you've met certain conditions uh, that sort of show your your dominance, you, you win. I think that this game does a better job than all the previous Koei games, because for one thing, it introduces an element that I feel like all of these games up to this point should have had, where you've sort of got a number two who's explaining all of the mechanics as you go along, which really helps. Like anytime you click on an icon, this guy pops up to let you know, this is what we're going to be doing in here. For example, you know, like the icons aren't always completely evident as to what they're meant to represent. Clicking on one icon means you're going to be able to enter into negotiations with certain airports or cities or what have you to try to create a, a um, I don't know, actually know what the terminology for that is. They, they just call them slots there to open up a slot for your airline to operate out of that airport or multiple slots. I like that this guy kind of appears on screen very explicitly lays out, you know, before you actually confirm, you know, like, here's what you're agreeing to or here's what you're saying. You know, you're, you're saying, OK, I want to open up this route and I want to put this many planes on the route and I want this many flights per week on that route. And you can back out at pretty much any point of any of that, which is good, too. I, I feel like it's much more forgiving and it, it's much better at explaining itself. And so I, I could definitely see this being a game that beginners could get into a lot easier than any of the previous Koei games that we've talked about. I was genuinely a little bit shocked when I started clicking around and, and going into the various menu functions and there were actual, like explanations for what i was doing immediately i felt like i had a better handle on how this game functions than any of the other koei games we've played it was a real relief so that brings me to a big problem i've got with this game you guys waited until your airline management sim to bring in that feature but you didn't do it in your ancient china warring states era 
<laughs> military strategy game. You didn't bring it into your swords and sorcery fantasy game. You didn't bring it into your age of exploration trading and, and pirate fighting game. Like you brought it into this one. This doesn't seem like a bad game. And again, I'm sure that this game has its fans and that there are people who are just all about like, yeah, business management sim. That is my jam. But it seems like a much harder sell to say, hey, you're going to be managing an airline than it is to say like, hey, you're going to be sending wizards out to fight knights to gain territory, or you're going to be exploring uh, uncharted waters to to sell your wares and, and hopefully not get caught by pirates. You know, like all these other things sound so much more exciting, where here it's like, on the face of it, it feels like, yay, paperwork, the game, <laughs> you know? No, I, I, I get what you're saying, but I, I do feel like the content of the game in, in cases like this is, is considerably less important than the form, you know? Arguably, you're right that, like, this on paper does not sound like as interesting of a subject to build one of these games around. But as we sort of established, this actually isn't that different of a kind of game from those. It's still essentially using using menus to move forward with taking dominance over a big sort of, you know, interconnected map. So I guess I have less of a problem with it just because once you get into the game, the level of interest that the game's mechanics provide, I feel like supersedes the theming of the game in this case. And I, I think also, like, honestly, this does have some pretty nice aesthetics. Like, I like the music in this game a lot more than any of the other Koei games. I'm with you that I wish this transparency had been in, in the other Koei games we've played, but I also don't know that I think it is necessarily losing as much as you're arguing by not being about a more fantastical or, or escapist fantasy. I would be curious to know, like, what people who were, like, exposed to this game as kids thought of it. Because, like, I can't imagine who would have gotten this game as a kid, you know? Certainly there were some adults who were probably purchasing this these systems just for themselves and playing them as well. But I have to imagine that was a very small part of the market. I would have to think that, like, th those are the people that this game would have appealed to more than, you know, your average youngster. So this did start out as a computer game, and I feel like it, it makes more sense as a computer game. I don't think in terms of interface there's anything wrong with the way this works, but I do think that as a computer game, this this would have a more easy fit with the audience, you know? Just about every Koei game is is better as a PC game than as a console game. Just, yeah, for not only, you know, the, the controls, which I do agree, I think they did a very good job of mapping the controls in a way that makes the game flow well and, and makes sense. Obviously, any game like this is going to be played a little bit better with a keyboard and mouse, probably. But also, yeah, you're just going to have a wider audience to target with a niche game like this. And yeah, it, it does surprise me that this came out on the Super Nintendo at all. I had to guess that maybe Koei was actually doing all right with these, that these were selling to some degree, because we sure have seen a lot of Koei games. And we're going to see more, including, I believe, a sequel to this one. Yeah, I guess Aerobiz as a franchise didn't really go on for that long. Like, there was a sequel, and then I think there was essentially a remake of this game for the Saturn and PlayStation. Later 
in the 90s. But unlike, say, Uncharted Waters, you can't, like, find, like, a modern entry in this series from, you know, the last few years. It doesn't seem to have had the legs that any of these others do. And, and you know, that could well be actually just based on the theming. The intrinsic appeal of something like this is not nearly as big as as there is for like hey run a merchant trading empire in the in the the age of exploration this is i believe the first one of these that um, not only has the option for multiplayer but is is actually required you're going to be playing against three other competing companies um which you know are either going to be played by another player and two computer-controlled characters, or just three computer-controlled characters. You could probably have more than one other person playing this, because this is not a simultaneous game, so you could just swap off the controller. Well, that's true. You could actually have up to four players playing this game. I think we're both on the record as thinking Monopoly is a pretty terrible game. But, you know, this seems to me like it would honestly be, in some ways, a more appealing alternative to playing Monopoly on the Super Nintendo. If you did play this four-player, that feels like it would be a slog because it can take a while to get through a single turn, just just with one player. Like, I was doing a lot of stuff in my turn, and I was just thinking, like, wow, if I had to sit through three other people doing this, that would be a chore. You and your friends would have to be very into this game to actually want to do that. There probably is an audience for this. It's pretty obviously not us, but nothing else on, on the Super Nintendo is necessarily serving the audience that these Koei games are. So props to them for that, I suppose. One other thing that I think is kind of neat about this game that we didn't mention when we were sort of running down how this game works is that there are historical events that are peppered into kind of the timeline of this game as as the years sort of roll on, you know, things like labor strikes or the Olympics, international trade conflicts that all kind of change how profitable it can be to, to run flights out of a particular airport. Um, and that's kind of interesting because I do think that does add a little bit of like a fun sort of real world dimension to this and i i think that it, that as well is probably probably something that accre- increases the appeal of this game to to a particular audience that might want to play it in some ways it is a bit like the roger ebert quote it doesn't matter what a movie's about it's it matters how it's about it if you're interested in kind of like how the mechanical guts of this game work, it probably doesn't matter as much whether or not you're you're into any of the stuff about like kind of the particular fantasy of, of running an airplane. It is probably time to move over to the list and see where this one is going to go. We've got 144 games on this list, starting with uh, Super Mario World at number one, ending with Race Driving at 144. So I believe the highest ranked Koei game that we have right now is probably Uncharted Waters. Yeah, so Uncharted Waters is at 93. I would probably go up from there. Yeah, I think I would too. I came out of this one feeling more confident about my ability to actually recommend this game to somebody than I did with with any of the others. And I'm seeing like a lot of mediocre platformers that I would probably not go back to before I would give this one another shot just to kind of dig into it and see what else it's got. Do you have an idea of where you'd see the ceiling for this one right now? I'm kind of thinking maybe Super Bowling at 81. Okay, I could see that. I could see that. On balance, I think I'd rather play a round of Super Bowling than I would 
kind of gets stuck into a game of Aerobiz. So if we go down from Super Bowling, we have uh, one of the most recent games we've ranked, actually, Power Moves. How do you think this compares to that? You want to know something embarrassing? I am completely blanking on Power Moves, even though I know that this is a very recent one. It's a fighting game. Oh, this was the one with, um, what's his face? Warren. This was the one with Warren. We'll just call it the Warren game. Warren presents power moves. I, I'll remember it now. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> That's probably not a great sign for power moves, huh? No, probably not. Yeah, maybe this one just goes right below Super Bowl. Although, I feel like Super Bowling is one where it's like kind of another choke point here for a lot of things. And so now I'm wondering, like, okay, is Super Bowling actually that good? It's a pretty okay bowling game. It's got a couple of different modes. It's got some decent personality to it. There's things to recommend it beyond just this is a sport that translates pretty well to to a video game. But yeah, I mean, it's also a pretty simple game. That's true. Do you want to consider moving up from from Super Bowling here? No, nah, I, I think we, we can we can stay below Super Bowling. So maybe this one just goes between Super Bowling and Power Moves and it becomes our new number 82. I'm good with that. All right. So congratulations, Aerobiz, number 82. Koei, you're, you're moving on up. All right. Keep on going. Maybe you'll reach the top 50 someday. Probably not. By the time we get to like Nobunaga's Ambition 16, it's cracking the top 10. That was Aerobiz, and now I guess it's time to uh, prepare for landing, put our trade tables up in, in the uh, locked position, dig into this absolutely bonkers <laughs> movie and game yep. that is Cool World. It's certainly a profound artifact of... of- I think probably how successful Roger Rabbit was that something like this both got off the ground and got utterly mangled by the need to make it more like Roger Rabbit midway through production. Here's the, the, the real bonkers thing about this to me is that like, and, and again, you know, as someone who has not seen the movie, you know, someone who's, who's played this game now and has seen all these different, you know, sort of cartoon characters that they created this movie seems to have less of a cohesive animation style than Roger Rabbit did, despite the fact that Roger Rabbit was an amalgamation of a bunch of different cartoon characters that actually existed from a bunch of very different studios. No, you're not wrong. That's yeah. almost praiseworthy. <laughs> almost, yeah. It's it's a very strange thing. I think that that certainly is true of the movie, that nothing in it really kind of feels like it, it fits together particularly well. There's apparently a story that uh, the um, director of the movie, Ralph Bakshi, basically told the animators to just sort of go nuts and draw whatever they wanted to, and none of the animators really saw, like, a script for the movie. I assume that is mostly talking about, like, kind of the background and incidental stuff, because obviously the people that were animating, like, the main characters that do talk and interact with live-action humans. There's no way you could have done that without them seeing the script. So this movie was was sort of uh, Ralph Bakshi, who's like this very famous counterculture, I guess, animator. He did possibly most famously Fritz the Cat, the movie version of Fritz the Cat. He did the the not very successful but pretty memorable Lord of the Rings animated movie in the late 70s, uh, which is not great. It is surprisingly bloody uh, if you've ever seen it. He had taken a break of about, like, you know, a decade or so from, from actually making movies, and he 
wanted to get back to it for probably artistic, but also financial reasons. So he came up with this idea for essentially this movie that was like a, a hard R rated animated live action horror comedy movie. And I think probably because Roger Rabbit had just come out, a studio was willing to just sort of throw some money at him to make this movie uh, without really looking too deeply into like what the content of it was. And then part of the way through production, they did see what he was making and they were like, oh, this needs to be something that kids can watch. This can't be this can't be what you want to make it be. There was some real turmoil there. And the movie that resulted is even stranger, I think, than it would have been otherwise. You can, I think, kind of see the places where the pivot to it being a horror movie would have happened. And it just doesn't. It goes in kind of a completely different direction that isn't very satisfying and isn't very good for the story that it's sort of setting up the movie has uh, uh kim basinger and uh gabriel byrne and brad pitt in it and it takes place partially in cool world and partially in las vegas which is also the case of this game apparently apparently you can go out of cool world and into las vegas at various points in this game well i i sure never made it that far nope i didn't see that either and because cool world ultimately was something that they were attempting to market to children. There was merchandise. Uh, like you said, it's really weird that there's merchandise for this movie that was largely, I think, sold on the sex appeal of Hollywood, the Kim Basinger animated femme fatale character for this movie. There's video games for it. There were toys, I think. This game is, I think, one of the better games that was probably made out of this movie. That ain't saying much. So this game comes to us from developer Paint by Numbers, and there is not a lot of info on the web about them. Uh, the only other games that they're connected to are NES games based on Darkman and Robocop 2. Uh, they also worked on some games based on Hook, but not the one for the SNES that we played a while back and rather liked. Uh, the only other tidbit I could find about them was that they started life under the name Impact Software Development, and under that name, they developed two games based on Clive Barker's Nightbreed. One was called The Action Game that played out like a 2D run-and-jump platform game. The other one was Clive Barker's Nightbreed The Interactive Movie, which is different. <laughs> it played out a little bit more like a point-and-click adventure game with other interactive elements thrown in. And from the little bit of it that I saw on YouTube, it's an impressive looking and uh, probably appropriately unsettling game for you know what it was based on, uh, at least for the time. Uh, both of these games came out on uh, various computer systems in 1990, although the interactive movie only came out on Amiga and DOS, I believe, whereas the action game came out on a lot more consoles probably wasn't as technologically demanding as the interactive movie was other than that their very first game was 1989's run the gauntlet for amiga zx spectrum and other computer systems it featured various racing style games including a iron man style foot race all of the games that were developed by paint by numbers and impact software development were published by ocean so i don't know if they were just like a little in-house development thing for ocean i i don't have any reason to believe that they were, but uh, I'm not entirely sure. Like I said, there's not a lot written about them. They don't have anything in their gamography past 1992, uh, which is 
oddly enough, when Moby Games claimed this game was released, I'm guessing maybe that they got that release date confused with the NES version, though I don't think Paint by Numbers did the NES version of this game. Who knows? Maybe our list is wrong. If this did come out in 1993, there is a good chance that this was the last game they ever made. Well, not the worst note you could go out on, I guess, but probably not what you'd want. Yeah, I mean, I will say, like, the visuals of this game are pretty impressive. Like, when you first drop into Cool World, the, you've got the backgrounds, the melty buildings, the yeah. weird face doors, some of which are moving. Like, I actually think this game's got a pretty cool look to it, and if the movie's like this, like, I would be curious to watch the movie just to see the background elements. The Cool World itself is probably the reason to go see the movie rather than, you know, any of the characters or the story. We did play, like I mentioned before, like we both mentioned before, Cool World on the NES a long time ago, and it was nearly unplayable. This game is less of the just kind of straightforward 2D platformer that that game was, and this one almost feels like, um, this is almost like a fantastic dizzy sort of puzzle platformer where a lot of the puzzles are based around picking up items and delivering them to the right places or people. You also get a little stretchy punch hand pretty early on that lets you not only punch enemies, but uh, you can use it, grab onto ledges above you, which is, you know, kind of neat. The sprite for your character looks all right, is pretty well animated. Uh, A lot of the enemy characters just look kind of silly, but I'm going to chalk that up to the characters in the movie probably looking really silly. They all look better than the absolutely cursed image of Brad Pitt's character that you see uh, if you get nabbed by the cops in this game. Oh, yeah. I guess that's sort of like... That's a death in this game, right? I'm not 100% sure on how that's supposed to be working there, but you're essentially like kind of dropped back to sort of the start point, starting point, if you get nabbed by the cops, which you will if you just stand around for more than a couple of seconds. It felt like I got nabbed by the cops. I saw the screen where they're like, okay, don't let us catch you again or whatever. And then I just go back to the main area and I'm just like, what was even the point of any of that? Why? I don't know. This game is just throwing things at me to be obnoxious. And it's like, I'm just trying to figure out the puzzles. That's enough. I don't need these little blue things jumping on me, slowing down my progress and where I have to shake them off so that I don't get hauled down to the police station again. You know, but I mean, the game does correctly depict the cops as the bad guys. So, you know, that's good. On the one hand, this game doesn't really give you much direction, but... It's also pretty clear, I think, sort of what your options are. So that's not really that much of a problem here. But it is extremely vague about almost everything, aside from the fact that you have your character, you know, and uh, he can pick stuff up and go into various buildings, essentially. I really found it annoying that... I'm expected to sort of, like, avoid enemies while I'm also just trying to parse out, like, what on earth I'm supposed to do. I wish that the adventure parts that are more puzzle solving they're more, you know, reliant on puzzle solving and areas in which everything's a more or less standard 2D run and jump, or, you know, in this case, run and jump and, and punch with your comically large boxy glove hand. You know, if they kept those a little bit separate, I think that this would have been a better experience. Because, like, at one point, I'm trying to pick up these nickels, and the nickels are also animated characters that are bouncing up and down, and I have to 
hit them with my boxing glove hand so that they get dizzy, and then I can go pick them up. But while I'm doing this, there's a character walking around who, if he catches me, will take all of my nickels. Yeah, he will mug you. Yeah. And the nickels didn't seem to respond. So I'm like, what am I supposed to be doing here? Are these nickels even important? Like, if I've lost my nickels, then... Is the game unwinnable at this point? I'm not entirely sure. You know, I will say it's it, it feels hostile in about the same way that, that the city in the movie feels hostile, but that does not make for a great game for sure. But I mean, I feel like you can work with that within the confines of a point and click adventure game or, you know, a, a 2D platformer adventure game like this is. The fact that everybody is very cold to you and won't respond to you until you do something for them or bring them something, I think that's a... a perfectly good structure for a game like this and if they wanted to do the whole thing with hey the police are going to come for you because you're uh, annoyed which is what they call humanoids i guess in this world have that come into play via the puzzle elements like if you try to talk to somebody too many times without doing the thing they want you to do maybe they just say like you know what look i'm calling the cops and then the cops come and pick you up or something like that i don't see why i need all the weird enemies jumping out and just just for the sake of making everything more frustrating and not, you know, really yeah. more challenging or more fun. It's it's just obnoxious. So how much progress were you able to make in this game? Because I was not able to make very much. Yeah, neither was I. I, you know, I picked up some nickels. I found a bunch of nickels floating in the sky at one point, And so I got, got a couple of those. I punched a guy on a building until he flew away. There's one point in which I go into a building, which I can only get into after I've given the bouncer some flowers. There's a turnstile there, and then my character walks into the turnstile, starts spinning around, and then the turnstile flings him back out the door. I tried jumping over the turnstile, and that did not work, and I wasn't sure what I needed to do to get past that. I'm assuming it was another puzzle. I didn't know, like, if to, okay, do I need a certain amount of nickels to pay the fare? Do I need, like, a ticket to get in? What do I actually need here? And yeah, that was, that was as far as I got. I couldn't figure out what on earth I was supposed to do with the turnstile. I would have liked to have explored more and figured that out, but the enemies just make exploring so not fun that I just kind of said, no, I think I've played enough. I'm done. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I feel like it was pretty clear that the turnstile was the thing you needed to get past to like progress with the game. But I had no sense of like how to actually do that. And the overall experience of playing the game becomes like more and more frustrating as the kind of hostility of the game world sort of builds up around you. At a certain point, I was just like, okay, I don't this is uh, this is my experience with this game and and you know it's it's also it's frustrating because i feel like there is more effort put into this game than at least a number of the licensed games we've played and i i just wish that it had been better directed at making kind of a fun and approachable version of this same idea uh, kind of like the movie my time interacting with it was interesting but i i can't really say i had much fun with it i think that's probably a good note to end it on So, you know, I mean, I'm kind of torn because there are platform games like James Bond Jr., which are so bland. I'm tempted to put this game above it, but also James Bond Jr. was a little bit more functional than this game was, just based on, like, what we were able to do. Well, actually, you know, like, we've got Gods up at number 84. I think this game is better than Gods. It's kind of doing a similar thing. It's another, like, sort of puzzle platformer, and I think this one's a lot better than that. I mean, I appreciate that, unlike Gods, this game actually has puzzles and isn't just, like find various keys to open doors and try not to die. I 
think I would probably go back to this game before Gods. So yeah, that's fair. I might go as high as like Spider-Man and the X-Men at Arcade's Revenge at 64. Maybe that's the ceiling. Unless you think it goes higher than that. I don't think it goes higher than that. I think that's probably a good place for this to stop. I have to say, I think I probably would be more interested in playing this game again than like Lethal Weapon at 68. What do you think about this game versus, say, Lagoon at 65? Uh, I think I'd probably give Lagoon the edge on this one. I think that this game is interesting and it's potentially got some fun stuff in it, but I also think that the overall experience of playing it probably is a little harder to take than Lagoon, even though Lagoon has its own issues. I'd probably go below Lagoon, but not by much, honestly. Like, maybe it goes right below Lagoon. Yeah, maybe it does, because right below Lagoon right now, we've got The Hunt for Red October at 66, and I don't think that game is interesting enough to recommend it over Cool World, so I'm kind of surprised it's going as as high as it is, but I think Cool World's going to be our new number 66. (laughs) Probably the best rating that anything related to Cool World's ever gotten, so... (laughs) We'll ever get again. All right, well, congratulations, Cool World, number 66. Um, I mean, really, not, not a bad ranking on this list at this point you heard it here folks cool world better game than axelay prince of persia and hyperzone so yeah definitely you know i don't think that this statement needs any more context than this cool world is better than the hunt for red october that's right that's that's right i i can't imagine that being taken into any kind of context in which that sounds nonsensical at all oh, yeah so that's gonna bring us to our last game for today which is dragon's lair finally dragon's lair the uh, the, the laser disc based adventure game comes home to consoles obviously you will need the sony cd adapter to play this game i'm kidding of course this is just another 2d platform game that they adapted from dragon's lair but again way way better than that nes one. Oh yeah that nes one is truly dire uh this is not this is this is a lot more middle of the road i think but let's uh Talk a little bit about Dragon Slayer as a whole before we talk about this game. Well, I think the story on Dragon Slayer has probably been told many, many times. In case you're not familiar with Dragon Slayer at all, it is a Laserdisc-based game that came out in arcades all the way back in 1983. So back when the arcade was still kind of in its infancy, this game with amazing <laughs> uh, animations by Don Bluth and in, in his studio also hit arcades around the same time and it kind of blows everybody away. Gameplay-wise, it's a little on the simple side, though, because... Basically, all you're doing is just either swinging your sword or moving in a certain direction at the right time to get the video to continue playing, uh, lest you just end up with a video of your character dying instead. Yeah, this game is essentially a game-length version of what these days we'd call a quick-time event. I'm going to say I've never seen a functional Dragon's Lair cabinet in an arcade. They have always been broken whenever I've seen them. I saw and played one once as a child and could not get past the first screen because I could not figure it out. Actually, that also might have been Dragon's Lair 2, now that I think about it. But yeah, so like I said, 
you know, the story of Dragon Slayer has been told many, many times. If you are interested in hearing the story of Dragon Slayer, I would recommend you hear it from H Bomber Guy on YouTube. He's got a very cool documentary called Halcyon Dreams, the story of Dragon Slayer. It's a really interesting look at not only Dragon Slayer, but the guy who was really responsible for making Dragon Slayer, not Don Bluth, but Rick Dyer, who kind of programmed the thing and had ambitions for a home console that could play something like that Laserdisc Dragon Slayer game that unfortunately never came to fruition. So maybe I'm spoiling things a bit there, but go watch that documentary anyway. It's really good. I think that the Don Bluth, pretty famous guy, uh, I, I'm going to say I do actually think that something like Dragon Slayer is maybe like the best use of his talents because he is a great animator. Uh, the animation in, in Dragon Slayer, the arcade game, is gorgeous. I don't think he's as good of a storyteller as he is an animator. So something that kind of uses his animation as sort of essentially a reward for getting further in the game. I think that works really well. Dragon's Lair is a very popular game, very well-known game. It's been ported to pretty much everything you can imagine, including DVD players. I've actually got it on DVD along with Dragon's Lair 2 and Space Ace, which, uh, hey, we'll talk about Space Ace a little bit more in the future as well, because there is a Space Ace game on the SNES. Further complicating my ability to research this game in particular there have been so many games just calling themselves Dragon Slayer that are all different games, but based on the same property that makes it difficult to find the right one. But this version of the game was published by Data East of all companies and was developed by Motive Time Limited. And uh, just like Paint by Numbers, I could not find a whole lot of information about this company. They also developed the NES Dragon Slayer game that we mentioned before that I have never seen anyone get past the first screen on. And the NES version was published by CSG ImageSoft, which would later become Sony ImageSoft. Uh, according to Moby Games, Motive Time was associated with Elite Systems, a development house founded in 1984 that's apparently still around today making mobile games. What that actually means is anyone's guess. But yeah, that's really all I've got on, on motive time. I couldn't find anything else. This is a uh, pretty straightforward uh, action platform game, really. You are making your way as Dirk the Daring, the kind of Dragon Slayer hero, uh, through a variety of stages trying to rescue, uh, I guess, a princess from the dragon. These levels are not exactly open-ended, but they have things to kind of explore around and, and discover, you know, health power-ups and various ways forward. And it's all okay, I think. I think that the sprite for Dirk the Daring is both really unattractive and far too large. But overall, I don't hate the way this game plays. Well, I feel like for as large as he is, they needed to make him thicker. Like, he, he looks like he needs to eat. Yeah, he's really thin. He's a straight up and down boy, this Dirk. They should have made his sprite a little bit thicker so that, you know, they could have given him a, a bit more detail. I think some of the enemies look pretty good. Uh, there's like these snakes that pop out of barrels in the first level. I think they look pretty impressive. I mean, you can definitely see where they were influenced by the look of the original Laserdisc game. And I think, you know, some of the animations on the enemies really reflect that. And there's there's a snake boss that you get to not too far the way into the game that I think looks great, honestly. Uh, it's, a, it's a shame that Dirk is not as well animated as that guy. There's also sort of an issue with the 
game though because uh you were saying that you got to that boss and just could not figure out how to beat him yeah he was hard to hit for one thing you have to use your projectiles to hit him in the right place or so it seemed anyway there's just so much stuff flying at you like he shoots projectiles and then once those projectiles fly past you or you know really more likely through you they spawn like a little pterodactyl enemy that then flies up from behind you and hits you it's I was not sure what I was supposed to be doing because going back to hit the pterodactyl just meant that I was leaving myself open to get hit by the next projectile that the snake was going to throw at me because there wasn't really much of a break. Yeah, that snake fight was some BS. Looks cool, but is not fun and I do not know how to beat it. As for me, I didn't even make it to the snake. I got stopped on kind of the level before that. The controls in this game are kind of slippery, actually. I could almost see that being an intentional choice to sort of give that sense of just everything being out of control, which is definitely what I think is how you feel when playing that original game. But it doesn't make it good. No, it it doesn't. I am pleased that your character in this has essentially a health bar. You can be hit multiple times and and health power-ups are pretty common in the levels, so it is harder, I think, to die from getting hit by enemies than it is from just falling into a pit. Because that was most of my deaths, I think, was, was falling into pits because they are too small for this very large and very slippery sprite to stay on. I I found myself getting frustrated pretty quickly in this game, but it's far from the worst playing platformer we've, we've experienced. He has a couple of attacks. He has a sword attack, which... He pretty much just swings kind of in like a diagonal arc down. It feel, feels like he he should have more options for the sword. I feel like the hitbox was pretty generous, though, so I wasn't too worried about it. But yeah, I, I hear what you're saying. It didn't really give me a lot of trouble. It just felt strange. And he also does have projectiles. He can throw things, and there are, there are a number of different options uh, that you can pick up in the levels, almost Castlevania style, for this projectile sub-weapon. Including a, uh, essentially like a boomerang or something, that if you let it hit you when it comes back towards you, will actually hurt you. Uh, that's a, a uniquely hostile to the player thing that this one does. It is, and that also feels exactly like the kind of BS that the original game would have pulled. Yeah, no, it, 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 it genuinely does. I don't have a lot of positive things to say about this game, but I, I do I do think there's some craft here. Again, you know, I, I think our expectations were pretty low with all three of these games today, and we, we you know we've we found some nice things to say about them. I think um, I don't know if I've got a whole lot else about Dragon's Lair though. Did you have anything else? I really don't. No, I think it's time to go to the list. Got another 2D platformer. What if we started at Cool World at 66? My impulse is to say that maybe. Even though I think there's more playable game up front in Dragon Slayer than Cool World, I'm a little less intrigued by it than Cool World, you know? Yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat. And I mean, I definitely hit a wall similar to Cool World where I feel like I have not yet exhausted every possibility in Cool World. Like, I could still conceive of, like, what I need to do to get past the the stopping point that I got to when I did. Whereas in Dragon's Lair, I don't know what I'm supposed to do about that stupid snake. I I really have no clue. <laughs> and, and I don't know if I care enough to really try and make another go at it. So, yeah, I think we, we are saying this will go down from Cool World. I'm kind of looking at 
Prince of Persia at 74 as maybe a comparison point here. What do you think about that? I think Prince of Persia is a better put together game than this. But I also feel like like your movements in Prince of Persia are exactly the kind of movements that you don't want in a game like Prince of Persia. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like you you can't you can't move quickly very easily without really leaving yourself vulnerable. You can't make small steps to, you know, exactly position yourself where you need to go. Like it almost seems like they've they've got the levels set up for Prince of Persia and then they decided to make the mechanics exactly what you wouldn't want in order to get through that game easily or efficiently. Yes, I do see what you're saying there. Obviously, I I very much respect Prince of Persia as a thing, but I just do not think it's very fun to play. And I think that even though there's some real frustrations in Dragon's Lair, I, I do think that I enjoyed my time actually playing it more than I did with Prince of Persia. Yeah, but then on the other hand, like, I, okay, so now I'm looking at stuff below Prince of Persia, and honestly, like, I can't see myself putting Dragon Slayer above Axelay, really. Yeah, that's a good point. Well, okay, if we if we bounce down further, I'm looking at other games that seem like decent comparison points. Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally. I think maybe that one is something we could have a conversation about here. I wouldn't even really have to think too hard. I think I would say I would put this above Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally. I think that Dirk is less infuriating to control than the Roadrunner is in that game. So this is good. We're kind of narrowing down a range here a little bit. I'm not sure I would put this above Raiden Trad in 86. Okay. So you think this maybe just goes straight above Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally becomes our new number 87 game. I think so, if you're cool with that. I'm good with that, yeah. I am good with that. Congratulations, Dragon's Lair, uh, number 87 on our list. Hey, everything uh, made it into the top 100 today. Yeah, I didn't really expect that going in here, but uh, these games, uh, they proved themselves. At least a little bit. Dragon's Lair, not as bad as the NES version. Uh, Go ahead and put that on the back of the box. You honestly probably could sell some copies of it with that quote, frankly. (laughs) Like, no, no, seriously, we promise it's better than that. We're so It's better than that one, yeah. We're so sorry. Our our list now has 147 entries. Well, we're going to have 150 entries next week. That's fun. Zooks. Yeah, that is fun. All right. So all that's left to do is uh, to get serious for a bit. All right. So, um, you know, this week we are uh, anxiously awaiting here in uh, Washington State the arrival of our ballots. Uh, Those are supposed to be coming out in the next few days in the mail. And uh, I don't have much to say this week, but I'm I'm just going to urge everybody, please vote. Do not assume that any particular outcome is more likely than any other. Just work towards the one you want. Please vote. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 2020 has not been great. Let's not assume that we're just due for uh, an uptick in in our circumstances just automatically um we have to work for those and yeah you know i know that we're we're not all necessarily uh voting for who would have been our first or even 18th pick but um we got to work with what we got so (laughs) so looking ahead to next week uh we got three more games coming you know hopefully the streak of games being sort of, you know, nice surprises will continue. Uh, We've got Harley's Humongous Adventure, Hit the Ice, and Shanghai 2, Dragon's Eye. 
we'll see how that goes. Uh, I don't really have much of the way of uh, knowledge about two of those games, but the other one I'm familiar with, and uh, we'll see. That's that's going to do it for us. Did you have anything else you wanted to say to the people out there, Steampunk Link? I do want to say one thing really fast. I just checked our numbers, and we've got some episodes that have had over 100 listens, and I just wanted to say thank you all for listening. We really, really appreciate that. That is, yeah, that's awesome. That's really cool. So here's to the next 100, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Until next time, I'm Steampunk Link. I'm Emmy Zero. Play it loud. Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoaxe, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoaxe.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com. Yeah, Cool World is just on another level. That one is like... That would be like if they decided to make a video game now based on the movie Cats. Yes, I would play that game. I would play <laughs> that game. Ugh. Give me, give me a, a entire Skimble Shanks the Railway Cat like rhythm game, and I'm there. Honestly. <laughs>